In the winter of 1983, violence descended on the remote community of McCarthy, a town of about two dozen souls. Lou Hastings, armed and intent on killing everyone in the community, began his assault by shooting his next-door neighbor, Chris Richards, in Kennecott. Hastings then drove to McCarthy, where he would murder Maxine Edwards and Lesson Flo Hagland as they socialized, unsuspecting, in the Hagland home. Hastings then took up the position of sniper at the mail shack and ambushed and murdered more residents as they came to collect their letters and parcels on mail day. Among those killed that day was Amy Ashenden. Amy is a lesser-known victim from that dreadful day in 1983. She arrived in the Wrangles with a Harvard degree and an honors thesis titled Climbing the Cold Mountain Path. Amy plays an important role in Tom Kaziah's new book, which he titled Cold Mountain Path. exploration of Tom Kaziah's new book, Cold Mountain Path, The Ghost Town Decades of McCarthy, Kennecott, Alaska, published by Porphyry Press. The climax of Tom's book is the shootings of 1983, but there's nothing sensationalized about Tom's account. Tom was on the scene that day as a reporter for the Anchorage Daily News, and he would carry the tragic message of the death of Jim Edwards' wife, Maxine, to their son, Steve, in Anchorage. Welcome to The End of the Road, a podcast brought to you by the Wrangell Mountain Center with a generous grant from the Alaska State Council on the Arts and from our supporters in Alaska and around the globe. We thank you. I'm Michelle McAfee. And I'm John Erdman, Executive Director of the Wrangell Mountain Center. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting people with wild lands through art, science, and education in Alaska. I sat down with Tom Kaziah at the old hardware store on the Wrangell Mountain Center campus in historic downtown McCarthy. Our isolated remote community is on the very edge of wilderness, giving this place a strength and vulnerability few towns experience. The 1983 shootings are a story that our town has traditionally been hesitant to discuss, even in private conversations. And yet, with the advent of the internet, The story is now quite well known, a proliferation of sensationalized so-called true crime stories can be found with a simple Google search. Tom's account of the shootings contains both a journalistic respect for detail alongside a deeply human sensitivity to the way in which the murders impacted the community both then and now. Amy Ashenden. She was a newcomer to town, and I didn't know anything about her. I just said she was, you know, a young woman who had just moved to town and gotten married from the East Coast, and that was about all I knew. Learning her story for this, she's one of the most fascinating characters in this book to me. She grew up in Massachusetts and had just graduated from Harvard with a comparative religions degree and studying Buddhist philosophy. Her thesis was climbing the cold mountain path. When she came to McCarthy, she was on a kind of spiritual quest. She was, in some ways, an archetype of one of those important strands that brought people here in the late 70s and early 80s. Tom provides a beautiful description of Amy's arrival in his book. 
a short, apple-cheeked 25-year-old backpacker named Amy Ashenden climbed off the mail plane. She was auburn-haired and strong-shouldered and uncommonly well-read. She wore plain work clothes and had an air of quiet curiosity. She made friends and hiked across the glacier to explore a drained lake bed filled with ice cubes. Then she settled in as a cabin sitter and started writing in her journal. Amy had grown up in western Massachusetts on a former dairy farm outside the small town of Shelburne Falls. She excelled at private school and graduated from Harvard with a degree in comparative religion. Yet she puzzled her family, who considered her clever but excessively critical, moody and discontented, burdened by the so-called conveniences of the material world. The title of Amy's college honors thesis, Climbing Up the Cold Mountain Path, came from the poetry of Han Shan, an 8th century Tang Dynasty hermit who used landscape imagery to metaphorically describe a state of mind. One section describing the cold mountain sounds a bit like the Wrangles. Cold Mountain has many hidden wonders. People who climb here are always getting scared. When the moon shines, water sparkles clear. At the wrong season, you can't ford the creeks. Amy summarized her own personal quest she embarked on that eventually took her to the Wrangles. I guess ever since I studied Asian ways of thought and value systems in school, I have realized that the real work of my life is not to have fun, entertain myself, or just get by. It is a pretty deep commitment to the attempt to develop a spiritual understanding of life, to plug into something bigger than just me and my ego desires. I feel I have stumbled on the catalyst to actually make a trembling start in this greatest goal for the first time in my life, instead of paying it lip service and getting drunk again. Amy was an archetype of the kind of person who arrived in the Wrangell Mountains in the late 70s and early 80s. Young idealists found their way to McCarthy, and starting in 1971, Ben Shane brought college students to the Wrangles. They congregated in a dilapidated old hardware store in the ghost town of McCarthy, a hastily constructed building from the mining days when the town was a bustling sin city and Anchorage was just a tent city. They set about repairing the old hardware store, and it still stands to this day as the beating heart of the Wrangell Mountain Center. I loved um, Jenny Carroll's description to me of the college programs here running out of the hardware store as a kind of midsummer night's dream version of an environmental studies program. I thought that was pretty perfect. I, too, was fascinated by this history of the community and the work of Ben Shane, Marcy Thurston, Sally Gibbert, and others from that early college program era. They were deeply involved because they cared so much about the evolution of the community and the culture, wanting to preserve those unique and hard to articulate qualities about living in Kennecott McCarthy in those ghost town days. But for these early founders of the Wrangell Mountain Center, their path forward was one of cooperation and collaboration between the many diverse interests that were coexisting businesses and entrepreneurs, miners, conservation and the National Park Service, and, of course, local homesteaders. 
We asked Tom about that. It's true. That's very true. And, you know, it could easily have been a much more divided community than it was. I think that those folks had a big part in keeping the divisions down, creating a much more positive attitude, which I think has paid off and has helped give us the community we have now. And I think there was an intellectual rigor to what was going on here that was somewhat introduced by the college program and a sense of what are we trying to accomplish? How can we do this cooperatively? Tom writes more about the vision of the Wrangell Mountain Center founders and other young idealists at the hardware store in the 1970s and 80s. They struggled to envision an idealized middle way not heretofore achieved in the American experiment, in which their town would neither be erased by a back-to-nature effort nor bloated by easy access into a commercial center. Arrested decay, arrested development. If only McCarthy could stay somewhere in between, never losing its balance with nature. Like Ben Shane, Marcy Thurston, and others of her generation, Amy Ashenden wanted to fully commit herself to her ideals. After finding her way to remote locations in the lower 48, and after working and traveling across Alaska, she came to the Wrangell Mountains and found what she was looking for in the wilderness. But Amy soon found something she wasn't looking for, a mountain man named Tim Nash. Tim Nash was strong enough to drive a nail with a choked-up sledgehammer, but he was coming off a rough year. His wife left, and he felt alone and depressed. In Cold Mountain Path, Tom describes Tim. Tim Nash had black ringlets and a body carved of marble. He was 12 years older than Amy and emotionally reticent. She was impressed that he hunted all his meat and grew his own vegetables and built with local materials whenever possible. He was a person who thought about how best to spend each day. Amy wrote in her journal, A lot of people talk about these things, but it's so refreshing to meet someone who really lives by his principles. He's also very much attuned to physical health and is in amazing shape. When I watch him literally shoulder a tree and walk to his woodpile with it, I really can't quite believe what I'm seeing. The two fell in love and were married. Amy's parents said they had never seen her so radiant. This is a quote from a letter Amy wrote to her friend. I've been going through so many changes and realizations of late that I almost hesitate to say much. I'm on new ground, good ground, and promising ground. But I need to watch my step a bit. Trust is such a delicate thing. We have a good, basic, and deeply seated common goal in each of our individual selves, dictating a simple peasant's lifestyle, and that lifestyle almost necessitates a partnership for it to endure. There is too much drudgery and quietness for one to go it alone in a place like this for a lifetime. The life is good, but the novelty wears off quickly. And Amy's letter ended... I'd better close here if I'm to get it on this week's mail plane. I think I could go on forever. These are some of the last words from Amy. Her letter was dated February 28th, 1983. It was addressed, stamped, and found on the table in their cabin the next morning, Tuesday, March 1st. 
the day of the shootings at the mail shack. Tim took a bullet to the leg while investigating the scene of the shooting at the Haglands. He returned to the airstrip where he and Amy made the decision to stay at the scene and defend their friends and neighbors. They were ambushed by Hastings, who, in total, murdered six of the community's 22 residents that day. Maxine Edwards, Harley King, Les and Flo Hegland, and Tim and Amy Nash. aftermath of the male shack shootings, the community sought understanding. They turned to one another to process and plan. One of the most pressing and recurring questions was whether to cut ties with the outside world in order to protect their tiny wilderness community. Perhaps it was best to remain insulated. There were many intense and at times painful conversations and discussions. Some residents wanted isolation. They wanted to pull up the drawbridge. But eventually, the town settled on a course of action that Tom describes in his book as an idealized middle way, neither cutting their ties nor building a bridge. They rebuilt the old tram system that spanned the Kennecott River, maintaining the community's link with the outside. As Tom puts it, Tramming, their communal ritual of renunciation and connection, would go on. Visitors were welcome if they showed the essential psychological hardiness, like the three guys who pulled their wheelchairs across the old tram that summer and rolled into town on knobby wheels. As Sally Gibber put it, Tram is the perfect self-administering interview system. Amy, as a, as a student of Buddhism, I mean, she was all about impermanence. And this landscape, more than any, just speaks to impermanence. Not only the fading of the old buildings, but the changing world itself in front of us, the dynamism of the mountains. And she recognized all that. So looking at the world through her story at that point gives us a way to look at the past and learn how to let go of it and not cling to it too tightly. I mentioned earlier the pipeline era as a backdrop for this, and it was almost a kind of a religious tableau, the Kennecott ruins at that time, as a depiction of nature coming back in and reclaiming its role after the huge churning, depredation, hole-in-the-ground effort of industrial capitalism comes roaring through. 
nature bats last, you know, and you can sort of sense that in Kennecott. And there was that feeling that that was an important theme for the pipeline era as Alaska was beginning to transform elsewhere, you know, and that's part of what I've learned in figuring out how to let go of the past or to encompass and move through the past is to accept that impermanence that Amy talked about, you know, and be more accepting of, of things. The mark of good storytelling is to tell stories that are honest, authentic, and inclusive. Tom's book certainly succeeds on these counts, and it makes us eager to continue this season of our podcast exploring the stories of our past. And also exploring questions about the nature of stories themselves, like how we tell stories, how our stories impact our points of view, and the spaces we create to share these stories. And perhaps most important of all is the question of how we listen. You know, we all find our impermanent lives fading from our grasp, and we're trying to comprehend what it's like to be alive and standing there at the threshold of the past and watching it fade away. You know, beyond the question of Alaskana and American culture at that sort of personal, emotional level, there's meaning to be found to stand at a ghost town and listen. Join us in Episode 3, where we talk with professional storyteller Jack Dalton. I remember I remember we were doing the Alaska Native Oratory Society competitions. This woman from Southeast Alaska told this unbelievably riveting story, a real thing that had happened to her. She was so nervous about it, and at one point she was speaking so softly and everyone in the room was leaning forward. And what was amazing is they were leaning forward not because they couldn't hear her, but there's just something so intimate about speaking quietly to someone else that it's like they all wanted to honor that intimacy. You can go to www.wrangles.org, that's Wrangles with two L's, to listen to more episodes from our podcast. At our website, you can also support us financially, you can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, and you can check out the programs that we operate here in McCarthy during the summer. And visit our Facebook and Instagram pages to stay up to date on WMC Happenings, and to get a flavor of the sights and sounds as the ever-changing seasons roll on in the Wrangles. I'm your host, John Erdman, episode writer, producer, and executive director of the Wrangle Mountain Center. And I'm your host, Michelle McAfee, episode writer and audio engineer. We also want to acknowledge Peter Bradley, writer and audio editor for this episode, Aaron McKinstry for logistical support and coordination, and David Jacob Strain for mastering this podcast. Special thanks to the Alaska State Council on the Arts and to our supporters far and wide. And we are especially appreciative to Tom Kazaya, as well as to Jeremy Pataki and Porphyry Press for the opportunity to sit down with Tom. And thank you for joining us 
at the end of the road. 